Happy fucking Christmas. Ladies and gentlemen. Mostly gentlemen. <laughs> Let's be honest, it's mostly gentlemen. So I'd like to welcome you all to our podcast today. The boys are back. Yeah. That's a cold start. The last one uh, starts on spilling Chardonnay. I took one for the team. Spill the tea. Who's going to spill this time? I'll pee my pants. Don't pee your, <laughs> pee your pants. I'm doing it. No! I'm doing it. You guys, we should do a podcast where we're, where we're high at one point. <laughs> Way ahead of you. <laughs> and you do a podcast... Afterwards, like analyzing all our ideas, I think that's that's probably one of the most common podcast theme ideas. Like we'll do a different drug every episode, and then and it never lasts because a couple episodes in, you just have a you just have a drug problem. You have a drug problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's not let's not do any other. That's drugs, always like the problem. Hey, it's Meth Week here at the <laughs> podcast. Not even once. Meth only once. Maybe one time. Right. Uh, so nobody saw Spider Man. That was that was one thing. I, I saw Aquaman. Okay, poor choice of the two. Hey, <laughs> the guy who plays the Green Goblin. You know Willem Dafoe. Yeah. Godspeed, Spider Man. They digitally make him look younger, and they put his face on a floaty body, and it looks yeah, so. Yeah, they did look kind of uncanny valley. Man. Uncanny valley. Peter Parker. He's already like naturally uncanny. Valley. He's already kind of weird. Yeah. He was a babe when he was younger, though. Have you seen pictures? Was he? It really just goes to show you that nothing in life is guaranteed. Mm-hmm. You could be 29, approaching 30, and look pretty good, and then in a couple years you become the Green Goblin. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Mary Jane are gonna have a hell of a time. Uh, yeah, that's... Speaking of old movies, I just saw this really fucking good old movie, Conspiracy Theory. Have conspiracy you seen this, Jimmy? Theory, Mel Gibson huh? plays a conspiracy theorist. Turns out he's actually right about this thing that's happening. A plot to assassinate the president oh, no. with an earthquake somehow. <laughs> a surgical earthquake strike. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I might have missed some of the details in it, but it's got uh, Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart. Okay. He's a yeah. babe, too, when he's younger. We should make this just a conspiracy theory podcast. That'd be fun. This is like cool. an AM radio thing. Uh, <laughs> okay. Just change the whole thing. Well, That's we didn't really bad. have a direction yet. The last line on my Tinder bio says that my love languages are uh, playful arguments oh and co- oh co-conspiracy. Oh, nice. But nobody, nobody really understands what I mean by co-conspiracy, and they just hit me up talking about Pizzagate and 9-11 and shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, not a recognized love language, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, you know, why does some old white guy get to have the final say on the five love languages? You're saying that you, as another white guy, should have the say? I'm saying that anyone can define their own love language. That's a cool oh, idea. We're talking. I like that. That's so right. You, how did you make your own love language? You got assigned it by a test? You took? No, I just decided. <laughs> you just decided it? Oh, okay. You get assigned. This is, this is my love language. This is yours. <laughs> take it. Care for it. <laughs> for me, mine changes actually periodically, but physical touch and uh, what's the other one? Words of affirmation. Sex. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I like that they throw physical touch in there like that one. You always so. do all the love languages, all five of them, but you don't necessarily like some more than others. Like, you're most... Like, I know people who don't like physical touch that much, but they have really, you know, good relationships with people because they are able to express themselves intimately with their words. Sure. You know? What do we got? We got physical touch, quality time, words of affirmation, um, acts, acts of service, service uh, gift giving. Gift giving, yeah. You're right. That's all five of them. Yeah. And dance, which is like conspiracy. <laughs> and <it>? conspiracy. <laughs> Talking about conspiracy. <laughs> I tweeted at the author of that book, 
and I asked him if cunnilingus is physical touch or acts of service. (laughs) (laughs) No, yeah, some of them are both. I'm sure he got back to you. Yeah, he blocked me. He blocked you. This guy's a troll. But yeah, if you read the book, you'd know that Mm -hmm. some acts are both. <laughs> He's like, this motherfucker didn't read my book. <laughs> he obviously didn't read the entire chapter on Kunal. <laughs> Have you read that book? I used to actually do a, a group on the five love languages back when I worked at the mental hospital. And some people would ask questions like that. Like, you know, you have people there who are just trying to start trouble and they'd ask questions like the one you asked, Dan. And <laughs> so we yeah. so discuss it and talk about it. Um, it's a fun topic. People love it. I found that the, most people would tend to conglomerate around certain love languages like physical touch and quality time. Most people did not care for gift giving. I don't know if that's a cultural thing like in America because we're so, we're so materialistic yeah. that gifts don't seem I've like definitely it. known people who that's, that's clearly their love language. Like they thrive on giving gifts. <laughs> but I think for most people that's a t- there's a lot of anxiety around gift giving. It just feels like yeah. – my my idea is like maybe it's just because we're so materialistic as a culture that gifts don't feel as special. Yeah, there, there's a cultural pressure to like find a gift for everyone at a certain time of year, so it feels more forced. Yeah, yeah. Getting someone a gift should happen when you see something and you think to yourself, "This person that I know has to have this because I know them so well." And they would. Yeah, this. yeah, yeah. I, I dated a girl once who really liked gifts, and uh, I had this idea that maybe it was because she was. <laughs> growing up like you appreciate gifts more because it's rare you don't get as yeah, many yeah, gifts yeah. from your parents well that's another thing is receiving a gift is like an unspoken requirement that you have to get a commensurate gift in the near future <laughs> to match that gesture mm. so it's kind of an anti-gift oh, that's messed up yeah yeah i agree that that's kind of ruins it the magic and everything so what did you guys do for New Year's? We went to Mother's we went to Muff, Muff Masters. Muff Masters. Is that what it's called now? Muff Masters? <laughs> How many times are they going to change the name of that bar? Mother Muffs. Mother Muffs. It was Mother Meadow Muffs. Muffins, right? <laughs> They've never served muffins. It's never been a muffin place. <laughs> People call it a dive bar. We were hanging out with these younger guys, your little brother. Yeah. Yeah, he was calling it a dive bar. And I was like, I always considered a dive bar to be something that has like maybe 12 people in it. I mean, a dive bar just means like a bad bar, but sort of like intentional. It's like a bar with one bartender. It's a bar with one bartender that's constantly polishing the same glass and wax is philosophical. (laughs) Exactly. You gotta have regulars, right, to be a dive bar. Yeah. People who are there all the time, right? Like, let's suffer together. And I was like, you know what? I like this. Yeah, it's like a sanctioned suffering area. Yeah, like they're they're wallowing in it. We all realize that our lives suck. There's a dive bar near my house here in San Francisco, somebody walked into this dive bar wearing uh, Google Glass. Google Glass. Remember Google, Google Glass when that came out? Mm-hmm. And uh, got the shit beat out of him <laughs> <laughs> for wearing Google Glass. I mean, you remember what those things look mm-hmm. like. You're not going to go into a biker bar <laughs> wearing that shit. with that and get away with it. Yeah, fuck you up. You want me to hear, put out another topic? I, oh, I, wait, yeah. wait, 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 wait. I want to hear what Dan did for New Year's. Oh, What'd yeah, you yeah. do for New Year's Day? Well, boys, boys, I went to Las Vegas, Nevada. Oh, Sin City. Wow. Sin City. Insert CSI Las Vegas yeah, you guitar riff. Do that. Wait, what were you doing there? Well, unfortunately, I can't tell you because you know what they say. <laughs> what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Oh, Which shit. is really just a, a thinly veiled way of saying come here and cheat on your wife with a prostitute. <laughs> you can get away with it. <laughs> 
I think that's uh, somebody else's stand-up. Oh, okay. I think that's like Norm Macdonald said. That's that. my man. That sounds right like there. a Norm joke. Yeah, no, I had a I had a good time. Well, so I had a date lined up in L.A. and it fell through at the last minute, and I was just getting ready to have a miserable, defeated New Year's Eve at a dive bar. <laughs> and it's probably at a dive bar. Not even. I was gonna, it was going to be like PJs and PlayStation. But yeah, I, f- I flew there on a private jet. Wow. It's, a, it's called semi-private. And Whoa. it's just a small plane. It's not private at all. There's a bunch of people on it. It's just a smaller plane. But it looks like a private jet. <laughs> and it exists exclusively for the flex of taking a picture outside of the plane. Oh, and saying, look, wow. at, look at my life. There's so many things like that. Holy shit. Oh, yeah. The, the airline literally has signs that say, like, tag us on Instagram. Share your jet suite experience. Yeah, but getting a ticket that late, like a regular economy class ticket, would have cost the same amount because these are, like, a relatively fixed price. Oh, okay. And my friend was going to do it, so I just decided to splurge and, and try it out because I have been working on this new character named uh, Danny Duche. <laughs> I love it. And that's Duche with a... Little accent. It's spelled exactly like douche, but with a little accent. Over the yeah. It's awesome. And he would get mad if you if you said Danny Douche, he would correct you. It's like a parody of Instagram success guys. Awesome. That's awesome. So yeah, that's yeah. how I justified it to myself. Right. You had to parody. Right. <laughs> that's why you. Were I'm there. I'm self aware. I'm in on yeah. the joke. I got a gamble. It's part of the joke. It's parody gambling. It's research. I have a parody gambling addiction. <laughs> oh my god. It's it's dark though. Vegas is really dark. I see all these like old ladies on rascal scooters or like dragging oxygen oh, tanks, social security no. checks into the slot machines. That's not a place to go if you're like emotionally conscious. Yeah. You, you really have to um, choke down the empathy a little Just bit. Just like when you look at yeah. everybody in any state of deep state of addiction, you can almost see the yeah. well around them, like the hole around them. Yeah, right. it's palpable. A lot of them would have these weird ticks or mantras where they would rub their hand in a pattern across oh. the screen of the slot machine and like tap on the one they wanted in like a specific mm-hmm. rhythm. They were all doing it. It was weird. Yeah. It was a lot of magical thinking. Yeah, that's weird. But I went there with this friend who just recently discovered she was adopted and she found out that she had family out there. Uh, her cousin owns the casino. I, I don't know if you remember from Back to the Future 2 in the like dystopian alternate timeline when Biff owns a casino called mm-hmm. Biff's. Yeah. Yeah. So he owns Biff's. It's the building they used in that movie. Oh, okay. But it was great. I sat right next to the mayor of Las Vegas. Wow. It was fun to walk around the casino with the casino yeah. owner to get like kind of an inside line. I feel like they're a lot more complicated now than they used to be. The machines? Yeah, there's like all sorts of choices and buttons. If you used to just like yeah. pull a freaking lever. You're totally right. I couldn't understand how any of them worked. I couldn't figure it but out. But it's still, it's still just a Skinner box. You know, all those details are just theater to sort of create the illusion of mm-hmm. agency. But you're still just putting money into a mm-hmm. yeah. machine, which is programmed to only award so many winnings yeah. so that it's uh-huh. a guaranteed profit. I mean, you're, yeah, you're literally pulling a lever. It's, yeah. a, it's a very literal Skinnerian yeah. situation. They, they discovered that from research that was done on rats you know rats pull the lever more often and more fervently if it's a random yeah, result exactly if it's randomly distributed if you have a guaranteed food pellet every time you pull it then why are you gonna you know pull it more than you need yeah but if there's randomness then the, the rat will hit the lever frantically and at the end of the day when you feel like you have more agency that, that just makes you feel more addicted yeah kind of like video games 
World of Warcraft, their loot boxes. Yeah, the drops. It's like you're rolling the dice each time you buy one of these treasure chests. You could get something, some kind of amazing gear, mm-hmm. or you could get a really shitty one. Mm. They used to do the like, pretty good ones yeah. every time, and just but they found that people got more addicted when you'd uh, alternate it. I did a paper in college on they required us to play 10 hours of World of Warcraft and then write about it. So I did hmm. a paper on how World of Warcraft uses Skinnerian psychology to program gaming addiction into mm. its players. That's mm. Oliver's favorite game. No. Yeah, he plays it all the no, time. No, He's no. always talking about that. No, you play uh, Defense of the yeah, Ancients. Yeah, it's, D- it's Dota. very different. No, no, no. He plays RTS games. Oh, we were just talking about this, Jimmy. You're just fucking with me. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's like, for the layman out there, it's like comparing Pac-Man to Halo because they both have a guy that you control. I definitely, I'm definitely a rat in a Skinnerian maze. Either way, regardless, regardless, we all are. regardless of like what you want to call it, they're definitely hijacking my dopamine system in order to get me to play more, and I can feel it, and it's disconcerting. Like whether I win or lose, I feel like shit after I play a game like that. You know what I mean? You just feel depleted. I don't know how it keeps making you want to play. I feel you, bro. But still do it. It's free. Yeah, dopamine addiction is a is a real. But there's also another system in our brain that works more sustainably. It's called the serotonin-based system. Serotonin. I'm team serotonin, guys. There you go. (laughs) Me too, man. Team tonin. Me too. Yeah. The tone zone. If you're team serotonin, then you better get out of Colorado Springs because the higher elevation you are, the more your brain relies on the dopamine-based system. It has to do with oxygen deprivation. It's something I noticed when I moved down to Albuquerque, even like 2,000 feet. There's a lot of suicides here. Yeah, and that's related as well, I think. I think the study was originally based in somewhere in Utah. It was also high elevation. And they, they started to notice that the suicide rate was higher in this higher elevation city. And they're trying to figure out why. And yeah. somebody postulated, this scientist postulated that it was due to oxygen deprivation from high elevation. No, it's, hard to, it's hard to isolate Mormonism as a variable there. <laughs> I wonder what the suicide rates are in, in Mormon community. I mean, Mormons are all like generally pretty happy, at least superficially. I don't know what's going on deep down. Yeah. I actually took a road trip through Utah and Las Vegas. Mm. I drove through, like, a town. Everyone there was blonde and blue-eyed. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, it's got to be a Mormon town. Yeah, it's a huh. genetically distinct haplogroup. Is it? Yeah, really? yeah. I always wondered that because all of the, my friends looked Mormon. They, they had a Mormon look to them. Because Mormons emigrated westward at some point in American history. I forget where the people group originates from. Did you see Trump Tower? It's all alone. It looks like all the buildings are, you know, sitting at the cool table and Trump's tower is uninvited. <laughs> a driver that I got told me about how the Vegas consortium whatever of casino owners sort of ousted trump because it folded oh because he wanted to expand it or something like that. he had all this space around it that he went to yeah another failed trump business huh. wow yeah it's really funny to see but also just like the windowless casinos and, and the patterns in the carpets that keep you trapped in the maze they kind of confuse you instead of leading you to an exit when you try to leave it kind of leads you it's back like an in. ikea, <laughs> an IKEA. <laughs> actually the thing that i like about vegas that isn't really doesn't really have anything to do with why most people go there is vegas is one of the best examples of like um arcology have you guys ever come across this term no it's a portmanteau of architecture and ecology it's like architecture that's so grand and all-encompassing that it had it's like a self-sustained ecosystem superstructures it's oh, one wow. of the few cities in the US that are designed for pedestrians so there's all these like climate controlled tunnels and breezeways that connect all the casinos like you could just walk around Vegas all day and never actually have to cross the street I know what you mean I know what you yeah. mean I mean I remember I remember going there and seeing the bridges between the buildings how, how is that like have to do with ecology? I don't really get it. 
It just seems like a really efficient way of not having to wait for people to cross the street. You know, besides being designed as a way to direct business, foot traffic into casinos, Vegas is built in the desert. It's like a harsh environment. Like, you see the same sort of infrastructure approach in, like, really cold northeastern cities so that you never have to walk outside. It kind of makes it feel like one big amusement park. Wait, Oliver, did I ever tell you... (laughs) Did I ever tell you about the time that my parents thought I was gay with you? Oh, shit. What? (laughs) (laughs) What? <laughs> no, you never told me about this. Mm. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, I feel like my parents have have always been waiting to find out that I'm gay. They've just been, like, waiting for the other shoe to drop. Really? Yeah, like, I'll I'll be like, hey, Dad, can I talk to you about something? And I'll be like, before you say anything, I just want to let you know that uh, I love you no matter what. Oh, my God. And I'm like, Dad, I, I just wanted you to help me with my taxes. Right. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, I don't know. For, like, besides all the other parental anxieties, I feel like there's two things they've always been worried about. One is that I would stop believing in God, and the other is that I would turn out to be gay. (laughs) What the fuck? That's crazy. Yeah, and one of those things happened. I'll let you guess which. (laughs) Oh, God. There there aren't a lot of openly gay Christians, and there's probably even fewer openly Christian gays. No, dude. I've met some people who were gay and had to come out, but they Mm -hmm. came from Christian families, and they still tell their families that they're Christian because that's worse to them being gay. Yeah, I can imagine. It's crazy to see, like, his sympathy to me. He's like, I can't believe you did that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it's it's a difficult process. But anyway... This was, like, right after the Waldo Canyon fire. Couldn't go back to our houses because of the wildfire, so my family was living in, like, a temporary housing situation, and this house had a hot tub. You know, I'm going to get some use out of this hot tub. And uh, I had a girl over one night, and we were hanging out in the hot tub, canoodling. We weren't, like, having sex because hot tub sex sucks. Can we all agree that sex hot tub sucks. sex is, is terrible? Oh, yeah, hot tub sex. Right? It's the worst. Oh, you just get overheated so fast. And, that was my and first time. Feeling, yeah, oh, didn't, yeah you, didn't you lose your virginity in a hot tub? <laughs> I did. Yeah. I mean, that's a cool way to lose your virginity because <laughs> yeah. your first time isn't really expected to be necessarily quality, yeah. so it's, but it's a good. that's a cool story. Yeah. yeah. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tight. I remember thinking, like, this is going to be really good, and then it was not, yeah. Not really. Not that's that what great. all the fuss really. is about. <laughs> well, it's like the water doesn't act as that great of a lubricant. No, no it kind of cancels out. It makes out. it a weird friction. Lubricant. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so I'm in, I'm in the uh, hot tub with this girl, and somebody comes outside, like, onto the deck. It's it's nighttime, so it's dark. And we kind of, like, jump. We're kind of surprised. And they shut the Oh, sorry, shut the door. So they couldn't really see who I was with. And uh, a couple days later, my dad comes up and is like, hey, can I talk to you? And I guess the girl that I was with, she was, like, kind of an outdoorsy Colorado girl. She had, I think, w- what kind of car did you have, Oliver, in, like, 2012? Um, that was your purple? Probably a Honda Civic. Yeah, that is a pretty good car. <laughs> it was purple. Purple. <laughs> it, was, it was purple. Anyway, she, I don't even remember what kind of car she had, but I guess she had the same kind of car as mm-hmm. you. And so my dad made note of what car was in front of the house, and he thought that it was your car. Oh. And so he made the assumption oh. that I was in the hot tub with you. Oh. But it took, <laughs> it took him a couple days to come around to having the conversation with me. So there had to be a couple wow. days where he was mulling about like, all right, my son's gay with Oliver. <laughs> I love that it's with Oliver, oh too, that you say, the way you say that. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. That's so funny. It makes sense now, like, some of the ways that he looked at me sometimes. <laughs> like, I'm starting to, like, put it together. 
I don't, I don't know if maybe your dad thought that because it might have come up in conversation that I hooked up with a guy. Because yeah. I definitely tried it a few times. Because I had just got done reading this article about how statistically the youngest child of three brothers, the youngest brother, is like way more likely to be gay. Mm. Twice as likely. Yeah, I remember you explaining yeah, I remember this. there's all kinds of reasons behind it, you know, like, oh, I can't beat my brothers in sports or anything, so I'm going to beat them at being gay. <laughs> like that. <laughs> Take that. Or something like that. And I felt like I was on like a trajectory where I could have become gay, but then one day I beat my brother in foosball, and then I was straight after that. <laughs> <laughs> and now he's gay. Are you serious? Uh, <laughs> no, I'm kind of half joking. Because like I remember in wrestling, I was better than them at wrestling, but I could never beat them because they're bigger than me. Mm. But I did better than them in high school. Maybe that made me straight. <laughs> but all these are, like, centered around the idea that homosexuality is a choice. I think there's different aspects of homosexuality that are genetic and different aspects that are actually not a choice, but, like, upbringing. Yeah. Probably a pretty controversial opinion. Probably, but, yeah. Um, it's a hot yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's both, you know? Like, they say nature versus nurture, but it's actually both. It's nature and nurture that creates somebody. Because like, that stuff goes deep as well, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you can't really choose your upbringing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or any sexual preference has to do with stuff that you saw when you were younger, you know, stuff that you were exposed to when you were younger, probably. Yeah, I mean, none of these delineations are really, you can't really draw a clean box around people and expect everyone to fit into that box. There's the idea of the Kinsey scale, but that's, even that is like a linear spectrum. Now we're starting to throw in asexuality. Some people are Maybe you're bi-romantic and asexual. Or like you're attracted to people emotionally. One of my coworkers, she's not attracted to somebody based on their sex. It's based on how emotionally connected she is to them. So Sounds gay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, these boxes are dull and brutish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Genetically, if you want to go into more detail, our bodies all start as mm. feminine. Before the hormones come into the uterus and start defeminizing or masculinizing parts of the body yeah. and the brain, we're all female, right? Yeah. So it makes sense that sometimes, based on your genetics, certain parts of your brain might not be defeminized completely and or might not be masculinized completely. And you might end up with someone who's more feminine in essence in their brain, but maybe not in their biology, not in their body and so they might be more inclined to be attracted to more masculine features and so that might be some of the genetic component of it there's got to be a little margin for error because of course there are people who are actually gay who haven't reconciled with that fact so you have to figure there's also people living a gay lifestyle who are maybe not as gay as they think they're like i have a friend here who is openly gay, living it up, having a great gay time, but has expressed that he is bi-curious. Which, yeah, I wonder what that, the experience of a bi-curious gay guy is like. Is it anything like the experience of a bi-curious straight guy? Like, is he trying to hide it from his friends? <laughs> Dude, I'm starting to think you're fucking straight. No, I'm not. Shut up. Bro, I fucking love dick. <laughs> That's cool that you felt free to explore that. That's not, I mean, like, that's pretty common in European countries, that's what I've been told, but it's much less common here. Like, in the U.S., you might hear a woman say, yeah, I, I went through kind of a lesbian phase in college. You know, it's common to explore that mm -hmm. and maybe find out it's not for you. Mm -hmm. You don't really hear a lot of people say, I went through a gay man phase. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, I was uh, I was living as a gay man, <laughs> fucking and cruising for sex, and now I'm a fully passing... <laughs> 
straight male <laughs> with a wife and kids. Yeah. And I remember being really proud of myself and being like, wow, I'm pretty I'm pretty open-minded. <laughs> I could do this. Like, it was also good to know for sure if Confirmed. I was straight or not. Because you never know until you try it. You know, a lot of people go their whole lives without trying. And it's like, well, how do you know you're not Right, what a waste. You're not gay, you know? Uh, Jimmy, Jimmy, did you have any any gay experiences? <laughs> did I? Were you ever attracted to another guy? Uh, no. <laughs> nope. Uh, I find it pretty rare. Yeah, I mean, I I am impressed as well that you felt free enough to do that. Like, I'm sitting here wondering, thinking, like, was it because I was repressed, or is it because I just wasn't interested? Or I feel like I've done some, you know, enough soul searching now where I would be okay addressing it and it still doesn't seem to come up. I feel like I'm pretty straight on the scale. But I remember having, you know, like my mom thought the same thing. She thought maybe I might have been gay. Oh, really? I think, I don't know if she did or, or if she was just preemptively being nice and saying, because she kind of was like, well, if you ever feel like you want to tell me that you're gay, then I'd still love you. <laughs> Aw, that's sweet. Yeah. My mom said the same thing, actually. So My dad said, if you turned out to be gay, I would still Make love you just the same i'd be a little disappointed but <laughs> <laughs> that's Which, honest. like for him like okay so honest he's being honest that's good yeah yeah i like it i feel like it was my way of my mom trying to dig to get me comfortable enough to share with her i don't think she was being truly honest because mm. she wasn't fully comfortable when Anne, my sister started a gay relationship yeah it really made her uncomfortable mm. too like it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to like be faced with it yeah you know? right it's a big difference yeah i mean it's something you know you know you don't have to do too much soul searching you don't really have to hook up with a guy to figure it out i'm just kind of like yeah science or i'm a scientist you know like i think about things like that like i gotta try it to know for sure huh. Well, to me, that's interesting that you took it that far. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's it's some real commitment to the scientific method. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of crazy if you think about it. Because it's like, this is another person on the other end yeah, you know, that I'm far. kind of fucking with. Well, it sounds like maybe you were getting pressured as well. Or was the, was yeah. the guy you were with kind of like, come on. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so you were like, well, in the spirit of science. <laughs> yeah, I was like, well, do I really? I thought about to myself, like... How how much do I really care? You know? Yeah. I mean, this guy obviously wants to, and I don't really care too much, so I might as well just do it. I, I remember feeling that way, too, like getting pressured by somebody. And it felt kind of gross to get pressured. I remember really not liking it. Mm -hmm. It almost felt like he was trying to trick me or something. Yeah. Know? Dude, I know exactly yeah. that feeling, man. It almost felt like, like he would get off if he did trick me. It's almost like it was like mm -hmm. a challenge. Yeah, definitely. That's like that's like every, not every gay guy, I'm not going to say every anything, but that's like every gay guy's fantasy, right? Is it? To yeah, to get a straight guy. Like, that's what, I, that's what I've been told. It's like the straight, if you can get a straight guy to hook up with you, it's so much hotter than if you just get to find another gay mm -hmm. guy. You know? Yeah, that was the vibe I got. Yeah, that's a... A conquest to convert, mm -hmm. yeah, someone. Yeah, it means that you're like persuasive and hot because you got one guy to change sexuality for you. you right. Yeah, you feel yeah. Like you understand what girls are going through, right? When because we, we're doing this shit, guys are doing this shit to girls all the time. You know. Yeah. Didn't, didn't you used to say that this was an Oliver original? Every every straight guy should go to a gay bar at some point just to for the empathy exercise mm -hmm. of. Knowing what it's like to be treated like a piece of meat. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. That's how yeah. it, that's how it all started. I went to some gay bars, brought my friends there. They start it starts out fun, like right. The clubs are more fun, 
right? The music's better, yeah. the dancing's better, everybody's naked and having mm-hmm. a great time. Way better than any other club I'd ever been to. And I don't even like clubs, you know, in general. Yeah. Yeah, and then people are buying you all these drinks and it's nice. But then you start to realize like, oh, there's there's kind of a price. You're the subject of the of the male gaze. Like, people are all up on you, people are grabbing you. So one motherfucker mm-hmm. stuck his hand on my pants. What? I was like, ugh. Damn. That was so creepy. Whoa. So creepy. Yeah. And like the older men, you know, that's what really creeps me out is the older men, I mean it's like girls deal with this shit. I even had a, I haven't had a really good friend in college. We were getting closer and closer, and I was like, "This is my friend. We're friends. This is great." And then one day he's like, "I love you," and I was like, "I felt ah, betrayed. I felt betrayed." Right. But at yeah. the same time, I felt bad. So I, you know, I went, I went along with. He wanted to have sex or hook up, and I just did some stuff with him. Like we fooled around, right? And it ruined the friendship. And I was like, "Girls go through that shit all the time." That's what yeah. it's like. You would have said you put him in the friend zone, but that's like the that's like the incel thing. It's like friend zoning, mm-hmm. you know. Right. At least you can see it from that perspective, where it's like, mm-hmm. it's not though. You're right. No, it's easy to see that now. Me being someone who yeah. has had sex with women, it's easy for me to see that. But if I had never yeah. had sex with a girl, I'd be so fucking bitter. I'm not gonna lie. Like you never know until you're in that situation, but. I feel like I'd be super, super bitter. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's hard to say what that would even feel like. Yeah, that is like a common incel refrain or like a men's rights thing. Like, well, women have uh, tons of privilege. They get doors open for them. (laughs) Yeah, shit like that. Yeah, yeah. get free drinks. Like, yeah, okay. Uh, You get like these kind of tokenistic handouts, but it all comes with the price that all your interactions and everything you do is tangential to your perception as a sexual commodity, Mm -hmm. which, yeah, it's got to... That's got to be exhausting. Oh, it's God. that's In that situation, alienating. I'd much rather be a guy than a girl who's constantly subject to the male gaze. But that might be partially because I'm not a girl and I'm not very fond of being looked at like that. Some people like Yeah, I that. mean, I'm sure that can be empowering, too. Can't really judge anyone for using that power, yeah. especially if you're kind of societally disenfranchised. I sometimes feel like people make up these weird, convoluted, almost like it's, it feels like it would be something on like an incel forum board mm-hmm. talking about why women are just the worst yeah i i see guys doing the same thing like mm-hmm. it goes both ways and it's just like a matter of like of if they really want to face their demons or not yeah it's kind of a cop-out to just say like yeah man chicks are just complicated uh-huh. yeah maybe you're just simple it's not just girls either it's guys too it's hard you know when you're talking about incels it's obviously like a really shitty position to be in if you're you haven't had sex your whole life you're 30 years old and you start to think all these things you know they're sick whenever we talk about incels i feel like we have to acknowledge that um there's a reason why they're acting that way and it might not be all their fault. I don't think it's their fault. I think my biggest beef with incels is the fact that they it becomes their identity. It becomes their well, what's flag. the alternative to having a group? There's a difference between like camaraderie and then like compounding. Compounding problems and then like embracing the problem and not really like feels like they kind of gave up and now they're just complaining this is the first time in history that people can converge around specific niche identities like that you know it's the the long tail concept you know it's like one of the great things about how the internet affects society is you can bring people together under really specific common traits common interests or common experiences but there's a dark side to that too 
it used to be, you know, you'd have like one incel in your town, and he, he was killed just... himself. That guy, that guy killed himself, <laughs> and he just killed himself. Yeah, this is the exact same thing that happened. I was reading about native tribes uh, when they lost the tribal system because I was thinking about punishment. You know how fucked up jails are, and I was like, I wonder if they had jails back then. <laughs> So I was reading about these different tribal practices when it comes to crime and punishment. Like when somebody steals another person's thing, you know, they initially they go to a council and the elders kind of guide them through it. Like, hey, you have to do this or give him this and then we're good. Every once in a while, that wouldn't work and you'd have to excommunicate or ostracize a person from the tribe and he'd have to basically try to live in the wild on his own. Right. But as the tribal system broke down and you put them all on reservations together, multiple tribes, you end up having this problem where people who have been cast out can meet up with each other. Hey, you're, you've been cast out too. We can all start a little gang together. They had this problem on the reservations where these roaming groups of juvenile delinquents would just go around stealing shit and they didn't have a system already set up to deal with those kids anymore. And that's kind of the same thing that you're talking about. You have to acknowledge that the problem is not so much them as it is, in my opinion, the overpopulated. Wait, what's what's the problem? Overpopulation somehow is the problem for Intel? Over, yeah, overpopulation because it allows them to go on the internet and interact with each other and create this bandwagon cycle of hate together. If we weren't overpopulated, there wouldn't be so many of them to be able to form that band in the first place. What? That's... That. I just think that's kind of ridiculous now. Like that's like a completely unsolvable problem. Now you just unsolvable. How is that unsolvable? Because the only way to solve overpopulation is to kill a bunch of people or something. Thanos was right. It's not a solvable problem. How do you solve overpopulation then? You can limit the amount of babies people have. If everybody doesn't have 2.8 children... Yeah, Japan's population is in decline. Like, Japan has an aging population because nobody's fucking in Japan. Yeah. They all have, like, pillow waifus yeah. and digital yeah, as girlfriends. Soon, as soon as you talk about incels, you have to bring up why they are the way they are. That's why they've grouped up together, but it's not why they've become that way. I think I think it's just because they were you know, miseducated and misinformed on what relationships are and how relationships work. And so they go out into the world with this sense of entitlement. And then when they don't find a woman who mirrors that or respects that, then they get all pissy. You know, I get it, but it's also like... It's inexcusable. They can unlearn that stuff and learn better ways of interacting. But instead of they they grouped up together and basically say, I give up, you know, like the guy who killed killed those those people, he's not like super ugly dude. Mm -hmm. I think that also probably drove his entitlement. I think the biggest problem is the the sense of entitlement that these people have I, I don't know maybe I'm getting out of my I think ultimately what I'm saying is is it is entitlement and they can learn. I totally agree with you in terms of entitlement I like to think about the causes of it the roots of it like um, have you ever read the book Moral Animal by Robert Wright? I don't think I've read that. He starts out talking about Elizabethan England and how before we had marriage as a stable concept a lot of monarchs would take multiple wives because they could support them. They could afford to support multiple families and wives that way. So you ended up with this problem. We had a lot of single, young single men, bachelors, who were angry because they didn't have a wife. They were like, what's the point of working every day if I'm not supporting a family and I don't see any future for myself? So they were starting these revolutions and the uh, powers that be, it kind of reinforced the sanctity of marriages as, as between one person and another. When they did that, the uh, unrest and the amount of revolutions that were occurring went down. That worked for like 400 years. And then more recently, 
in the last few decades, it's like a 50% divorce rate, right? So this author, Robert Wright, thinks our society is in a state of unrest again because you have so many young men who are angry and the way he describes it is frustrated about their futures, like lacking in hope. It kind of relates back to talking about overpopulation or population control. All conflict originates from scarcity. This is one specific kind of scarcity, but look at China as an example. There is or was state-enforced population control, one child or whatever. There's all kinds of weird side effects of that, like there's something they call little emperor syndrome which is where basically every child there has a an only child personality like if you ever if you've ever known an only child if you ever dated an only child you know what i'm talking about (laughs) but there's also uh in china there's this phenomenon the the missing girls of china statistically there's a disparity in the number of men and women because if you only get one shot at a child and you live in this culture where there's a value placed on having a son these girls start to disappear you know it's a very dark terrible thing but now as that population group starts to grow up there's statistically significantly more men than women and so there's a lot of people that inevitably are not going to be able to find a partner at least a heterosexual partner I don't know what the Chinese view of homosexuality is. They could yeah. all just be gay. Yeah, that's, that's a choice you can just make, just be gay. Right, that's a, cho- <laughs> that's a choice, right? If it only were that easy, <laughs> my life would be a lot easier if I could just be gay. Oh. I guess I shouldn't say that my life would be easier. I've gotten shit for that in the past. <laughs> you know, there's only 5% of the population is gay, so if half of them are male, it's probably more like a little over half, but like, let's say 3% of the population is what you get to choose from when you're trying to find a mate. Mm. You might be able to find more people that want to hook up with you, but when it comes to like actually finding a relationship, a sustainable relationship, mm-hmm. I've heard it's pretty difficult. You know, my best friend is always telling me how it's hard to find a guy. That's why you got to be bi. You can have yeah, that's the ultimate life hack. Choose from. Be bi. <laughs> Just be bi. You guys want to talk about microwaves affecting our brains? <laughs> no. I got nothing. <laughs> My parents have always been very anti-microwave. We didn't have a microwave in the yeah. house. I remember that. It's really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> but there's nothing There's nothing saying that that doesn't affect our brains. Like, I mean, you know how, like, for example, on a full moon, the change in gravity seems to mm-hmm. make us feel differently? Yeah, there's, like, more 911 calls on uh, full moon nights going into labor trends around a full moon it can induce- yeah and it's just one of those things that it's just so hard to measure that uh, there's a lot of scientific studies out there saying that it's not statistically significant correlation but you can use nonlinear algebra now to model us a, a trend that we could only model linearly before you can find correlations that are much more subtle so we are living in a statistics renaissance yeah, because currently our form of uh, measuring a correlation is it has to be 1 in 20. The person who came up with that number, 1 in 20, was an armchair philosopher. Just some old white dudes like, yo, yo this is what it has to be the number to be high enough. It's arbitrary. Yeah, it's totally arbitrary. And there's plenty of scientific papers out there that are interesting theories and interesting correlations between interesting things that are just thrown away because they didn't hit that mark. I kind of get the feeling that we're approaching a point where all scientific certainty starts to dissipate.
you know, because we're already living in a time where you can find an article to corroborate any opinion that you want to have. I remember also hearing about MRI machines being like miscalibrated. Almost every study that used this one kind of MRI machine, which was really popular, is now just like up in the air. Mm-hmm. Oh, tight. Oh, okay, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of studies that are based on MRIs. Yeah. Like when this thing pops up in this side of the brain, that thing associates with violence. Oh, yeah. and, or, you like know. we poked this and then this section that we kind of think does this lit up a little bit. All those studies really betray the fact that neuroscience is still a very soft science, too. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, we're trying to model something that's non-linear with a linear model. That's the final frontier. It's not outer space or the bottom of the ocean. It's the recesses of consciousness. <laughs> yeah, it's super exciting because it's the brain, you know? The, the brain yeah. is not a linear thing. There's so many... Mm-hmm. Sometimes we feel hot and cold at the same time, you know? We can feel love and hate at the same time. And mm-hmm. those are supposedly negatively correlated emotions, but mm-hmm. hate and love are actually based fundamentally in the same part of the brain, like passion. Right, like it's kind of a trite saying, but the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. Yeah, we can start by modeling it on a more simple, easier to understand concept, which is cold and hot Mm. take a burning hot pin maybe and poke somebody in the back with it or you poke them with a freezing cold pin the sensory receptors for heat don't know the difference all they know is it's a deviation from the norm is jimmy jimmy gone do we lose him (laughs) i'm here guys okay (laughs) all right cool i agree i i would i would say like like I've heard Alan Watts talk about this and he said like old people have a problem of rigidity of being of becoming too rigid and he said in order to stay loose in into older age one day a week just like the sabbath you know one day a week is holy well there should be one day a week where you are crazy <laughs> <laughs> because if you're not yeah. crazy one day out of seven, then then you end up going totally insane. Oh. So I I do think there's a yeah. looseness that you should approach yeah. life with in that way. More like Alan, what's this guy talking about? Shit. I read a pretty good article today on burnout. How it's just kind of the default state yeah. for millennials. Really? Yeah. I'm I'm interested in that. I want to hear more about that. I feel burnout all the time, but I don't know if I'm legitimately exhausted or if I'm just like lazy. Like guilt is an aspect of coming to terms with burnout. Yeah. Well, I mean, the article talked about how it wasn't uh, solvable. Oh, great. With like baths or yoga or mindfulness or all of this self-help and like self-love wave that we've been experiencing. Yeah. So like basically the idea is that like we're kind of always working and we're kind of always not working. And like millennials have become super efficient in everything they do. Yeah. Um, and so we end up leaving a lot of like mundane tasks to the wayside because we're so concentrating on trying to just make a living or get by. Yeah. Mm. Output. Yield. Yeah. We're like really, yeah, really, really output conscious. We feel bad when we're not working. So we can't enjoy good things. We feel guilt for doing them. Even our leisure and our decompression serves the purpose of our productivity, of our output. Right. It all is bows down to to the productivity. That is the, yeah, the super motive. And so the idea is that we, the super productive, super efficient workforce, that's the most underpaid, you know. And and, and underappreciated. I mean, we're finally sort of coming to terms with it. The fact that that whole lazy millennials thing was just mass gaslighting. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. and probably projection. Yeah. Yeah. We start to curate our whole personal lives on social media. So we're, we're not just super productive, but we're also branding ourselves as a product. And so that just becomes another responsibility that we all bear. You know the saying, like, fame is the mask yeah. that eats away like, at the face? Oh, yeah, yeah. What, Britney Spears, you have Britney Spears, the brand, and Britney Spears, the person. Yeah. It's a dumb example since, like, where's Britney Spears been for the last 
Well, I mean, not necessarily. She did have that whole shaved head thing, which is like probably the culmination of her face being eaten off, metaphorically. And and when that happened, everybody was like, oh, Britney, she's such a hot mess. But when she shaved her head, I was like, yes. I was actually proud of her in that moment because, you know, you live your whole life as a brand. Yeah. Being groomed by other people to embody some weird, you know, sexual ethic of simultaneously hypersexually but unaware of your sexuality. You know, that was was the theory of why Britney Spears was such an effective cultural figure. Yeah. And the whole time it's like, yeah, there's a person underneath there, but nobody really knows who that is. And after a while, she probably doesn't even know who that is. Exactly. But that was her, like, self-sabotaging in a way that said, I'm reclaiming my face, literally. Yeah. Reclaiming my appearance. Yeah, exactly. that ruled. Exactly. That's really really well put. It's Exactly. Then we all have our, you know, our own versions of that because we're all a little bit famous or, like, we're not famous yet yeah. you can kind of lose yourself chasing that yeah. yeah but nonetheless still it's a systemic problem as much as an inward journey as i can take i'm still in a fucked up system that doesn't have the opportunities that our parents yeah, sure. did when sure. when they were our age it's we, just, we we grew up in kind of a sweet spot though like if you think about it we were the last generation that got kind of a grace period compared to like you know imagine if you're gen z i'm so glad that there isn't like a permanent record of all my stupid opinions and like tiktok videos and vines that's always going to be around uh, forever. Yeah, yeah, like totally. Even even Jesus got his teenage years scrubbed from the <laughs> yeah from the Bible. Yeah, the story kind of drops yeah. off and then picks up in his thirties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's funny how memory, like, things fade, and yet, like, social media is, like, this digital record that's... I think there should be, like, the right to forget. Yeah, that's a, that's a thing. Yeah, that's why I like that's why I like Snapchat so much. <laughs> that, too, but also, I think, like, there should be, like, a statute of limitations on, <laughs> on that stuff, in a way, you know? If we're all feeling that, like, Big Brother's always looking over our shoulder and always going to remember, it makes it hard to just be yourself, which I think is uh, an important part of developing. Yeah, it's like I was saying earlier, like, having room to fail. Exactly. Yeah, room to fail. big aspect of development. It's also room to forget. What what was it we always heard in in school? Like, this is going on your permanent record, Mm -hmm. which, like, that turned out to not be a thing. There was no permanent record. Yeah. Most of that shit didn't matter. But then, uh, but now uh, I've grown up and it turns out um, there actually is a permanent record mm-hmm. and it's the internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, life is meant to be transient and hopefully where our society's headed is maybe a, a more transient appreciation of art. I get excited about our society maybe starting to appreciate the impermanence of art, you know, and how it's meant to be appreciated and made in the moment. A, a, a large portion of art is not meant to be um, and life is not meant to be recorded was that movie that just came out with Ben Stiller, um, where he was a photographer for this famous magazine? Oh, Walter Mitty. Yeah, Secret that Life movie that Mitty. just came out six years ago. Just came out. <laughs> Life is transient, Dan. Time's yeah. a construct. No, but I, I, you're right. Like Snapchat, especially. Like that's the reason all social media now is pivoting to emulate the model that started with Snapchat. Snapchat was so fun mm-hmm. right off the bat because of its ephemerality. Mm-hmm. There was something liberating about being able to just bullshit on there, and it would be gone in 24 hours. It's more natural. It's more like real life there's that famous scene at the very end of secret life of walter mitty where he's he's been trying for years to get this picture of a snow leopard right and then the guy doesn't take the picture and he's like what the fuck why 
didn't you take it? But he didn't take it because the reason he's such a good photographer is because he appreciates that some things in life shouldn't be documented. Like some things are so beautiful in the present moment that they need to be respected. Did he say that's why he's a good photographer? I think in it the was movie? implied, maybe. It was implied like this is, he's the best, you know, like he's the best in the I, world. That's interesting to think about. Not that I disagree with the sentiment of the movie, but I feel like to be a good photographer is to betray that as much oh, as possible. I like that. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> I mean, I think it, yeah. it, it costs you something. I think it does. Yeah, I remember that that scene actually pissed me off. <laughs> yeah. Time. Just because it reminded me of like a lot of insufferable people. That was like sort of the height of like the kinfolk Self-serious era. Uh-huh. shit. Really regressive <laughs> aesthetic fetishism. And But you're right. That is a huge component of being in any visual medium is you walk this very fine line of needing to document things knowing full well that by pulling out a camera you are fundamentally altering that experience or that moment, whatever mm. it is. Yeah. Sort of the art of it is learning how to at least mitigate the level to which the presence of a camera affects your whatever your subject is. Yeah, kind of like what scientists are doing with uh, trying to observe subatomic particles without right. affecting them. No matter what, they're going to affect it just yes. by looking at yes. it. I mean, if, it changes by nature of being observed. At some point, it becomes impossible. I feel like Nathan for you is a good example of this. The goal, I think, is to kind of reveal the humanity of a, of a moment, some kind of humanness, which usually goes away in the face of a camera. Like, I think some people get uncomfortable watching Nathan for you because he's kind of exploiting these people to reveal the funny or not pretty parts of themselves for our entertainment. You know, I think that's why I think it makes people uncomfortable watching it because it feels like he's almost exploitive. So in a way, it's sort of ethically gray. Yeah, the, the best episode of Nathan for you, in my opinion, is the the hunk. The hunk. The whole oh premise of that episode is it starts as a different episode. They're trying to do some other stunt or whatever. And he's like trying to get attention from a girl or something. He's like, I realized the best tool I have has been here right, all along. It's a, I have a camera crew with me. And then that kicks off yes. like a parody dating show. Yeah. Like a bachelor-esque dating show where all these people are not in on the joke. And yeah. the, the whole point there is that because of the presence of a camera, all these people are acting batshit crazy. Yeah, totally. Uh, going back to the, I guess, the value of Snapchat, or, um, ephem- the ephemerality of art and audiences' appreciation of it. Yeah. It's not as marketable or commodifiable or, I guess, even tangible. Like, the value of a play, for example. Like, the way you feel after you leave a play. It, it only happened that one time, and it becomes a memory after that. Rec- let's say there's no recording of it. I don't know. seems slightly more profound. I kind of find myself bouncing back and forth between trying to just enjoy the moment day to day Mm -hmm. and trying to create something like a play that would affect others that way, which is like a long-term investment and not something that's transient. That betrays the craft, which is something much more arduous, ugly, and painstaking. Yeah. Yeah. Anytime I see a work of art that resonates with me, it's a it's a weird contradictory feeling, half uplifting and encouraging and half completely depressing. Yeah. Because it's like someone managed to say something that I've been trying to say. Yeah. And in doing so fundamentally devalues any further expression of that oh, statement, whatever that, yeah. Yeah. that is. Definitely. Plays suck. Plays Yeah, plays are too art. I mean, I agree. <laughs> what are you doing, Dan? I gotta go to the airport. All right. Well, you guys sound like you figured out oh, the shit. secrets of life and all that, so you, you can keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you gotta go to the airport. Yeah. We should pick this up. I want to talk about this more, but I'm a little bit tired now. Oh, no, the Buddhist... Let me let me just say this one last thing. So yeah. the Buddhist... All right. 
philosophy is like, all right, so there's there's two types of Buddhist monks out there. There's the kind that choose to... Get out of here, Josh. Close the door. The fuck? All right. <laughs> Sorry. Sweet. <laughs>